Is this thing on? Oh, it is. Let's try something different. Why do I get the feeling you thought I was going to rap? <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first ever episode of Stick to Sports, coming to you live from Paris, France. My name is Ricky J. Mark, and I will be your host on this brand new project. For those of you that are new to the show, Stick to Sports is a sports podcast. Well, that isn't. That's the joke, folks. This isn't a sports podcast. In this day and age, one would be kidding themselves if they thought they could avoid politics. That is what this show is about. Now, you might not want to care about politics because of all the bickering, lies, cynicism, and overt hatred that we see now, but the truth is that politics is everywhere you are and makes up a huge part of your life. Look around you right now. There's way too much happening in the world right now to ignore it. We have the presidential crisis in Venezuela the ongoing occupation of the Palestinian territories, the coup d'etat in Bolivia, the Petro-Caribe crisis in Haiti, and the continuing border detention crisis along the southeastern border of the United States. Now, you'll notice that I'm, I didn't mention two other things. Yeah, we'll talk about those later. Whether we like it or not, politics is a part of our lives. We can't escape it, especially during this year, 2020 as the United States prepares for another presidential election. Whenever you go to work, there's a good chance you're going to get a paycheck every few weeks. Your employer, or the company that runs your employer, cares about politics, because that's what determines the minimum wage, for example. When you get sick and can't go to work, politics is what determines whether or not you belong to a union and therefore have access to benefits like paid leave or workers' compensation. If you ever lose your job, Politics is what decides whether you have enough unemployment insurance to stay afloat while you look for another job. Now, given that Five Reasons Sports is a Miami-based media network, there's a good chance that you're listening to this from Florida, the United States, or North America. Paid leave, unemployment insurance, and even healthcare are all the result of political activity throughout the years. Take the issue of healthcare in America, especially now. As things currently stand, the United States is the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't guarantee universal health care to its citizens. Now imagine dealing with that during a pandemic. Now France has it. The United Kingdom has it. The European Union has it. I know, I live here. So yeah, you might not want to care about politics, but I assure you that your employer, your landlord, and health insurance provider certainly does, along with anyone else that has a controlling influence on your life. Politics matter, and the hope is that with this series, we'll be able to make a compelling enough reason for you to care about it. Now, as this series continues to grow, we look forward to opening up our discussions to not only guests, but our listeners as well. We're going to stick to this particular niche, as we are well aware of the fact that you might hear some occasional politics talk from our friends over at Light Skinned Opinions. Of course, shout out to America's favorite dark-skinned producer, by the way, and the Ballscast. So stick with us as we stick to sports.
but not really. We'll be right back. Let me tell you a story about myself. My name is Ricky J. Mark, and I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was raised in Boca Raton, Florida by two proud Haitian-American immigrant parents. I've attended and graduated from law school with both a Juris Doctor and a Master's degree. By the time I turn 35, I'll most likely have around six college degrees, one of them probably being a PhD. From time to time, I write poems. Stay with me here. I'm descended from two foreign heads of state, President Stenio Vincent, who governed the Republic of Haiti from 1930 to 1941, and Emperor Faustin I of the House of Souluk, who reigned over the Empire of Haiti a century prior from 1847 to 1859. I can trace my ancestry back to Nigeria, Benin, the Maghreb, and France, among other places. Professionally speaking, I've worked with the Miami Heat, the White House under President Barack Obama, and as a legislative aide with both the Florida House and Senate. I'm also a licensed notary public. Since 2017, I've produced my own podcast and written sports articles for the Five Reasons Sports Network, as well as the RGM blog. My whole rap sheet can be found at rickyjmark.com credentials, and my resume CV can be downloaded by anyone in the world in both English and French with an internet connection. Now, I've done a good deal of things in my life that I would think my family and I can be reasonably proud of. And my life is all about being as good a return on their investment in me as it possibly can. But this isn't so much an autobiography as a point I'm trying to make. Here is what I mean by all this. Even with all of these things, the color of my skin, as beautiful and brown as it is, condemns me to the reality that I am one bad traffic stop away from being a hashtag on Twitter and a memory in the hearts and minds of my loved ones. It doesn't matter who I am or what I've done. The American criminal justice system only sees black and brown to be a dangerous color. Let's play some dash cam footage from 2017 in Cobb County, Georgia. I just don't want to put my hands down. I'm really sorry. I'm just... You're not black. Remember, we only kill black people. Yeah, we only kill black people, right? All the videos you've seen, have you seen black people get killed? You have. I don't know what's in his heart, but I certainly know what came out of his mouth. And it's inexcusable, and uh, we have to take appropriate action. The recommendation is to terminate his employment from the Cobb County Police Department. And then what, he gets another job somewhere else? Yeah. Okay. How many more people like me will see their lives violently and callously taken by the hands of an oppressive and increasingly militarized police force? How many blacks, American or otherwise, will be arbitrarily smacked with the death penalty by a police officer acting as a triumvirate of terror, judge, jury, and executioner? 
before due process is even able to get out of bed in the morning. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I can't help but feel angry. Angry at myself for not being able to change it, angry at the world for watching as it happens, and angry at an inherently racist and broken criminal justice system that continues to breed domestic terrorists wearing blue that receive little to no accountability when yet another avoidable black death takes place at their hands. I am sick and tired of black people being taught to be forgiving in a world where only they are tasked with taking the high road while so many others receive reparative justice, including land, political power, and even wealth, for wrongs done to them by either society itself or the federal government. For far too long, blacks in Western society have been perceived and treated more as entertainment than the equals they were born to be. There's no better example of this than sport, especially in the United States of America. It's easy to confuse entertainment value and equality because both involve the kind treatment of people. But here is the difference. We are entertained by dogs, but we are rendered equal by our partner. You treat your dog kindly to encourage submission and good behavior. You treat your partner kindly because dignity demands it. In other words, the idea of shut up and dribble, for example, is not too far off from shut up and entertain me, monkey. But look at how many black billionaires exist in the United States. Look at how popular some of your black celebrities are. How then can be racism in America? Well, Damon Wayans had a pretty interesting take on this a long time ago. Anytime white people want to smooth some shit over, they go get that rich nigga and put you on TV to represent the people, you know? You have you asking your questions like, Damon, now that you made this $13 million, and, and we're not counting, now that you made all this money, let me ask you this, let me just throw this out at you. You respond any way you want. Is there racism in America? You be sitting there thinking about that paycheck talking about, no, sir. <laughs> if in there is, I ain't seen none. <laughs> Not surprisingly, a capitalist society such as the one we live in determines validity and value according to how much money someone earns and currently holds. But are dogs not rewarded with treats for good behavior? Now, I believe this is known as positive reinforcement, which, if translated to human social behavior, can easily be linked to the acquisition of wealth by an even wealthier corporate hegemony. But while the dog is treated kindly and rewarded, its role in the household doesn't change. It remains beneath even the youngest, smallest human being. The irony here is that even a mistreated dog receives more open sympathy than a black man being shot like one in the street for simply jogging one fateful afternoon in Texas. Aubrey was killed in late February after being pursued by three white men who believed he was a burglar. 
The 25-year-old's family say he was jogging when two armed men confronted him. What happened next caused outrage across the US. Gregory McMichael, a former police officer, and his son Travis stand accused of Mr Arbery's murder, along with William Bryan, who filmed the shooting. This was a preliminary hearing to decide whether the men should go to trial, but evidence given by state investigator Richard Dial shed new light on the case. Dial told the court that William Bryan heard Travis McMichael use a racial slur as Ahmad Arbery lay dead on the street. Mr. Bryan said that after the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Aubrey was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement. It took 74 days for the McMichaels to be arrested, and only after the video went viral. Brian was arrested two weeks later. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation took over the case when local police and prosecutors declined to press charges. An example, say Ahmad Aubrey's family, of systemic racism. Here is Lee Merritt, the Arbery family lawyer. The system failed Ahmaud Arbery and the people of Brunswick. Uh, the system bent over backwards not to make an arrest uh, to distort the facts and the law. No justice! Ahmaud Arbery's death led to protests, and the place where he was gunned down is now a shrine that his mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, often visits. The day that I laid him to rest, that was my promise, that I, that I would get answers that I will get answers. That was my promise. That was the last thing that I told him the day of his funeral, that Mama will get to the bottom of it. The court was told that Amor Arbery was trying to escape from the armed men, and when he realized he couldn't, he decided to fight for his life. The US Justice Department is now launching a hate crimes investigation. Georgia is just one of a handful of states with no hate crimes legislation. The McMichaels are claiming self-defense. The special prosecutor in this case says Mr. Arbery was chased hunted down and ultimately executed. Andy Gallagher, Al Jazeera, Miami, Florida. The value of a black life in society is not yet tied to our humanity. Instead, this value comes from how we can best amuse and entertain our masses. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, the word is masters here. Yeah, that's right. Even now, as we've seen, Blackness continues to place us at serious risk for death and destruction. It's no wonder why so many of us within the black community will resort to neoliberal survivalism, seriously compromising on ideals that might stop the bleeding of a perceived social wound today, but will lead to harmful effects in the long term. Everybody likes their fluffy uncle, but he's Barack Obama's friend. He's got the cool black friend, right? That's all it is. Joe has a terrible history in the black community, and everybody just loves him because he's the fluffy old guy. He has given us no policies, and I like Joe Biden, but he's just not. I, I do like Joe Biden as a vice president. I'm reminded of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994 written by then-senator-turned-presumptive 2020 Democratic nominee Joe Biden and signed into law by then-president Bill Clinton, which had many black legislators vote in favor of. We now know it as the 94 Crime Bill. It's now been 25 years since the 1994 Crime Bill. It's time to repeal it. And it's abundantly clear, putting more people in prison 
hasn't made us safer. What it has done is decimate communities of color and rip families and communities like mine apart. The 1994 crime bill was written by a bunch of politicians who wanted to show they were tough on crime. So they passed mandatory minimums and tougher sentences, three strikes and you're out laws, and many more arrests for drug offenses. The bill gave states billions of dollars to build more prisons and keep people in prison longer. The result, the crime bill has filled our nation's prisons and jails with our fellow Americans, most of them black or Latino. We spent and keep spending billions of dollars on incarceration and enforcement instead of prevention. In the 1990s, politicians, Democrats and Republicans literally supported cuts to welfare and social services while building more prisons as a response to poverty and disinvestment in communities of color. We're still living with the consequences today. We were building more prisons at a time when we needed better schools, libraries, and community centers in places like the Bronx, Yonkers, and Mount Vernon. It was just a few years after the Central Park Five case. I was a teenager, and as a young black man living in New York, I remember very well when Donald Trump bought full-page ads in the city's newspaper calling for the death penalty for my young brothers. I've been an educator for the last 20 years and a principal in the Northeast Bronx for the past 10 years, and I'm running for Congress in New York's 16th District. My opponent, Elliot Engel, helped pass the 1994 crime bill. The American people want a crime bill. The American people are fed up with the proliferation of guns on our streets. The American people understand that we need to put more cops on the beat, build more prisons, and at the same time, give our youth, particularly our inner city youth, a chance. It's not pork, Mr. Speaker. It's just plain good common sense. It's definitely time to repeal it. For over a decade, I've worked directly with the people most impacted by mass incarceration. As an educator and principal, you see the impact on children and their families every day. How can you concentrate in school when your father, sister, aunt, or brother is locked up because they can't afford bail? How can you focus on learning when you have to walk through metal detectors and when there are more police officers in your school than guidance counselors? Can a child truly thrive when her school resembles a police state? One of the things the 94 Crime Bill did was put more police officers in schools directly funding what's known as the school to prison pipeline. Black and brown families were over-policed in our communities, and now they're over-policed in our schools too. That's why I decided to open up my own school and do things different. The Cornerstone Academy for Social Action is a middle school in the North Bronx, located in a historically oppressed community that's been impacted by racist policies like redlining, disinvestment, and the 94 crime bill. We are a restorative justice school that educates the whole child. We guide them toward becoming transformative agents of change in their own community. We have conquered the school to prison pipeline. I'm proud of what we have done, but CASA is just the beginning. It's just one school in one neighborhood. If we want to cure our addiction to neglect and torture, we have to start at the top. We can't rely on the same politicians who created our broken criminal justice system to be the ones to fix it. Those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. We need leadership that reflects our communities and our experiences. The kids and families I work with every day in our public schools need resources and opportunities to thrive. That means healthcare, housing, good paying jobs, and places to play and develop. More police and lengthy sentences are not the solution. Close a jail, build a school. It's time to usher in a new generation of leadership. We need Democrats in Washington who will fight for schools and education, not jails and incarceration. Join the movement and spread the word. Change is coming to New York 16. My name is Jamal Bowman, and that's why I'm running for Congress.
Many of us just want the beatings to stop. Many of us just want anything that will reduce the pain of oppression, brutality, and the avoidable loss of loved ones. We've all been convinced to accept this for so long that it's no wonder so many black leftists were squeezed out of collective black consciousness since the 1950s. When we celebrate Dr. King, we think about the Montgomery bus boycott and we tell that story from the bus boycott to the I Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington. And it's part of a standard story we tell ourselves about the black freedom struggle, that it's accepted by mainstream society. It's a story that uh, uh, it begins in the 20th century uh, with uh, uh, the founding of the NAACP. And then we jump from the NAACP all the way to uh, Brown v. Board of Education, and then the Montgomery bus boycott, and then uh, the student sit-ins, and, and then the March on Washington, and then Selma, and then King's murder. It fixes Dr. King in one place because he, he's, he's palatable there, because he's talking about love. By the time King is murdered, he's still talking about love. He was a preacher after all, but he's, he's speaking to the three evils, the peril of militarism, the effects of capitalism, and of course, the ongoing uh, sin of racism. Dr. King was also engaged in a radical politics because he understood that radical change was necessary if the country was actually going to be saved. There's this sense in which Dr. King has always invoked the Dr. King of 1963, the Dr. King of 62, 61, the Dr. King of the Montgomery bus boycott in order to constrain the scope and extent of our politics. But when we talk about Dr. King of 68, when he's talking about a fundamental reordering of, of our economic reality, when he's thinking about and trying to organize a poor people's campaign, where he's gonna bring poor people from around the country, black people, brown people, white people from around the country to build a tent city in Washington, D.C. to bring to the fore the situation, the circumstance of poor people around the country. That's not the Dr. King of I Have a Dream. That's the Dr. King who understood that we needed a radical act of civil disobedience to jar the conscience of the nation. Remember by the time he was shot down on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was calling for a fundamental reordering of, of America's economic system. He understood that racial justice was tied to economic justice. Right? He understood that a system, an economic system, which presupposed that there was disposable people could only produce a society that was predicated upon evil. And so he challenged the very assumptions of the country. And he did so from a moral standpoint. Uh, and for some, uh, that was not only radical. Uh, for some in the government, he was the most dangerous human being in the country. King, in some ways, passed from being a kind of radical figure in American history to being a cooperator of America's promise. King became not the figure who challenged us to live up to the principles of, of the revolution. King became an affirmer of those principles, a kind of voice that in some ways celebrated the greatness of America. So he crossed over and became, in the symbology of the country, a figure consistent with Washington and Jefferson and the like. He, his voice, in other words, uh, was co-opted uh, as a part of a story of American exceptionalism, an affirmation of the greatness of America as opposed to a critical voice speaking to the contradictions at the heart of the country. 
Dr. King would not be satisfied uh, with the moderates of today. Dr. King would be highly critical of folk who are satisfied uh, with the current order of things, or folk who are willing uh, to bite their tongue in the face of the nastiness and ugliness of a person like Donald Trump. I think if Dr. King were to be here in this moment, he would see a continuation of the forces that he confronted in the last days of his life. We have effectively whitewashed revolutionaries like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Now, how else do we ensure the obedience of a dog? We show him what happens when he adopts the characteristics of his ancestor, the wolf. Show him what happens when he reverts to his natural, pre-domesticated form. This selective social breeding and conditioning over generations has resulted in the taming of canines that will not seriously threaten the all-powerful House of Washington. Perhaps this is why Dr. King's more revolutionary words. We must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty and the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. We spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill in Vietnam while we spend in the so-called war on poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor. The other thing I want you to understand is this, that it didn't cost the nation one penny to integrate lunch counts. It didn't cost the nation one penny to guarantee the right to vote. But now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a radical redistribution of economic power. Yes, yes. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Now, this is what we are faced with. 
And this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. As somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high, and clean. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. Now, how many of you have heard Dr. King speak that way? How often do they speak about that king on the radio, on television, MSNBC, CNN? This is why those revolutionary words of his are systematically passed over in favor of the same kumbaya cliches we see once a year every February. I want the throne. <laughs> hey, you, the tuna. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. Your weapons. Our weapons will not be used to wage war on the world. It is not our way to be judge, jury, and executioner for people who are not our own. Not your own. But didn't life start right here on this continent? So ain't all people your people? I am not king of all people. I am king of Wakanda. And it is my responsibility to make sure our people are safe and that vibranium does not fall into the hands of a person like you. Son, we have entertained the charlatan for too long. Reject his request. Oh, I ain't requesting nothing. Ask who I am. You're Eric Stevens, an American black operative. A mercenary nicknamed Killmonger, that's who you are. That's not my name, princess. Ask me, King. No. Ask me. Take him away. Ungubani! Indingu Intadaka! Unyanakan Jogu! Huh? Unyanakan Jogu? I found my daddy with panther claws in his chest. You ain't the son of a king, you are the son of a murderer. We have Osisa! Lies! I'm afraid not, Queen Mother. Huh? What? You in Danda Toranjobu? Hey, Auntie. Maybe this is why Killmonger, and not T'Challa, the Black Panther, is considered to be the villain. Maybe this is more than we completely understand. The systematic oppression 
of black existence in Western society continues to be a mystifying paradox. In places such as the American South, a racist will address a 45-year-old black man as boy while simultaneously charging his 13-year-old son as an adult for a crime he probably didn't commit. Well, how did he get there? Well, I hope you'll forgive the cynicism, but there's a good chance a white woman probably called 911 on him for being on the wrong side of the street. There is an African-American man I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. Hey, if you have been on social media today, you have likely seen this. A Central Park confrontation went viral, netting more than 25 million views in it. A white woman appears to call police, accusing a black man of threatening her after he asked her to put her dog on a leash. Mayor de Blasio sounded off, too, calling it, quote, racism, plain and simple. News Force, Miles Miller's in Central Park with the new avalanche of backlash. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Tonight, the woman who called police on a black man in Central Park after an argument about her unleashed dog has been fired by the investment firm where she worked. And it's unacceptable. Amy Cooper apologized for her behavior last night in an exclusive interview with News 4. In a tweet, Cooper's employer, Franklin Templeton Investments, saying they don't tolerate racism of any kind. Please don't come close to me. The incident started after bird watcher Christian Cooper asked Amy Cooper, no relation, to leash her dog in a wooded area of the park where migratory birds are known to seek refuge. Video going viral with Mayor Bill de Blasio weighing in, calling it racism plain and simple. People in the ramble today agreed. People need to be especially concerned about having uh, civil discourse with each other in these times. Cooper told News 4 he spoke out because he's cognizant of what's happened in the past when police are called on unarmed black men. We live in an age of Ahmed Arbery where, you know, black men are shot, gunned down because of the presumptions that people make about. New tonight, we've learned a state lawmakers introduced a bill that would make it a hate crime to falsely report an incident to police. In Central Park, Miles now, how in the world does any of that make sense? Now, we've seen that many more times than we can bear. Black people tend to be subjected to more stress-related ailments, and this is compounded by the reality of black infant mortality far outpacing other ethnic groups between 2019 and 2020 as a small sample size. This has thankfully been highlighted by figures such as Senators Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders in recent months, and more definitely needs to be done. Going along with the medical theme, it's clear. Riots and social unrest are but a metastasized strain of the untreated cancer that is capitalist racial and social injustice, continuously left to feed on the most vulnerable and disadvantaged organs of society for the sake of a system that capitalizes more on lukewarm treatment as opposed to an outright preventative cure. I know, that was a mouthful. But it's true. Now, riots are truly never my first choice. But when all of our other options are exhausted, what other choice is there besides bending to the will of an inherently racist society? We can't talk about it at sporting events, online, or even in the form of peaceful marches. What else is there? Dr. King is quoted as having said that riots are the language of the unheard, which makes sense. I understand where he's coming from, but what happens when blacks riot and society instead decides to focus on the inevitable property damage? 
How do blacks then react to a society that will stop at nothing to avoid discussing racism? Three and a half months ago, white police officer Darren Wilson fired six bullets into unarmed black 18-year-old Michael Brown in the town of Ferguson, Missouri, killing him. Eyewitnesses differed over what led up to that. Local residents sustained protests over a number of weeks. The shooter later said he had feared attack. The civil rights movement, of which Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the leaders, to end racial discrimination against black Americans began more than 50 years ago. Laws were enacted, but then the established black leadership's nonviolent openness to negotiation experienced a backlash from younger black power militants. Confrontational race riots followed in Harlem, Watts, Detroit. King was assassinated in 1968, triggering more riots in many cities, including Cleveland, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Chicago, New York City. Limited recovery to mostly black neighborhoods took decades. In 1992 came the Los Angeles riots. In spite of video evidence, a jury acquitted police officers for the tasing and beating of Rodney King after a high-speed car chase. The military had to be called in to stop the riots which followed the acquittal, riots in which 53 people were killed and more than 2,000 were injured. Another milestone explosion of public anger over the killing of a young unarmed black American came after the country's historic election of a mixed-race president. The killer was acquitted in July last year. George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch volunteer in Sanford, Florida, described 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, who'd just bought candy and juice from a store, as looking suspicious. Even President Obama commented. Uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago. I think it's important to recognize that um, the African-American community is looking at this issue through uh, a set of experiences and a, and a history that, uh, that doesn't go away. There are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. That includes me. Riots followed the acquittal again, and the tearing debate about racial profiling goes on. Obama spoke in favor of scrutinizing laws to see whether they encourage confrontations and tragedies rather than diffuse potential altercations. What else can we do? If I'm being candid, I'm perfectly fine with what's happening. So be it. Do what must be done to make sure the powers that be have your attention. As we've seen, desperation is a powerful catalyst for social upheaval. When we kneel, we're told we're disrespecting the flag. When we try to bring up racism anywhere else, we're called divisive. When we rail against neo-Confederate monuments that were actually erected long after the South presumably lost the Civil War, we're told we're attacking Southern heritage. Does anyone besides me realize how ridiculous that sounds? There is no other option, and I understand and appreciate the zeal of all those protesting. Now, while I worry about the potential for COVID-19 spreading further as a result of all these groups coming together, I understand that this has to happen. In the meantime, be careful with whom you place your trust in regarding the political sphere. For example, she might be considered a resistance yas queen and so on, 
But Nancy Pelosi doesn't rock with you. She doesn't stand for black lives, nor will she do a thing to address the racial wealth gap in this country. Matter of fact, she won't even unequivocally support the movement. Studying journalism and media studies. Shelly, what's your question? Um, congratulations on your the election. Thank you, Do you support the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, I support the recognition that Black Lives Matter for sure, and I have incorporated that in many of my statements. Uh, I think it is, all lives matter. Yes, uh, but there has we really have to redress past grievances in terms of how we have addressed the African American community. I had a real privilege yesterday to address uh, the Black Caucus, the swearing-in of the new Black Caucus members. Eight, at least eight new members elected from places that are not majority mm -hmm. black communities. So this was a real a breakthrough. So I think that we are all you know, working together to make sure that every part of our community, whether it's the uh, immigrant community, whether it's the black community, whether it's women's community and the rest. Yeah, a simple yes would have just been fine. But, you know, when you are not comfortable with it, it's very easy to kind of dance around the question without actually answering it. But hey, all right. The ivory towers of neoliberalism. Yeah, they, they only believe that black lives matter as long as they vote for their candidates. It's not so much left versus right as it used to be. Now we're dealing with race and class. Malcolm X in the 1960s before he was taken warned us about this. And 1964 looks like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet. Why does it look like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet? Because Negroes have listened to the trickery and the lies and the false promises of the white man now for too long. And they're fed up. They've become disenchanted. They've become disillusioned. They've become dissatisfied. And all of this has built up frustrations in the black community that makes the black community throughout America today more explosive than all of the atomic bombs the Russians can ever invent. Whenever you got a racial powder keg sitting in your lap, you're in more trouble than if you had an atomic powder keg sitting in your lap. When a racial powder keg goes off, it doesn't care who it knocks out the way. Understand this, it's dangerous. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, in case you don't know it, that you got a new, you got a new generation of black people in this country who don't care anything whatsoever about us. Why does this loom to be such an explosive political year? Because this is the year of politics. This is the year when all of the white politicians are going to come into the Negro community. You never see them until election time. You can't blame them until election time. They're going to come in with false promises. And as they make these false promises, they're going to feed our frustrations. And this will only serve to make matters worse. I'm no politician. I'm not even a student of politics. I'm not a Republican, nor a Democrat, nor an American, and got sense enough to know it. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. 
And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. When we open our eyes today and look around America, we see America not through the eyes of someone who has, who has enjoyed the fruits of Americanism. We see America through the eyes of someone who has been the victim of Americanism. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. We haven't benefited from America's democracy. We've only suffered from America's hypocrisy. And the generation that's coming up now can see it and are not afraid to say it. If, if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you're black, you were born in jail. In the North as well as the South. Stop talking about the South. Long as you south of the long as you south of the Canadian border, you're south. Don't call Governor Wallace a Dixie governor. Romney is a Dixie governor. Twenty-two million black victims of Americanism are waking up. And they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And that, that, which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. You're the one who has that power. You can keep Johnson in Washington, D.C., or you can send him back to his Texas cotton patch. You're the one who sent Kennedy to Washington. You're the one who put the present Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. The whites were evenly divided. It was the fact that you threw 80% of your votes behind the Democrats that put the Democrats in the White House. The, when you see this, you can see that the Negro vote is the key factor. And despite the fact that you are in a position to, de to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. political chunk. In Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, there are 257 who are Democrats. Only 177 are Republican. In the Senate, there are 67 uh, Democrats. Only 33 are Republicans. The party that you bash 
controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. And what kind of alibi do they come up with? They try and pass the buck to the Dixiecrats. Now, back during the days when you were blind, deaf, and dumb, ignorant, politically immature, naturally you went along with that. But today, as your eyes come open and you develop political maturity, you're able to see and think for yourself. And you can see that a Dixiecrat is nothing but a Democrat in disguise. You look at the structure of the uh, government that controls this country. It's controlled by 16 senatorial committees and 20 congressional committees. Of the 16 senatorial committees that run the government, 10 of them are in the hands of Southern segregationists. Of the 20 congressional committees that run the government, 12 of them are in the hands of Southern segregationists. And they're going to tell you and me that the South lost the war. Nevertheless, the revolution is coming. Make sure your voter registration is up to date, your family is safe, and that your faith is strong. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we must do everything we can to be ready for whatever comes our way. The incumbent in the White House absolutely has to go, and he has to lose this November, along with his administration of devils. I want to be very clear on this. I'll have more to say about that later, but in the meantime, peace and love to the families of so many lost black souls at the hands of police, namely Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and the countless others whose names we may never know. May justice come to the devils responsible for their deaths, and may freedom come to black people all around the world. Make no mistake. Until there is justice, there can be no peace. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Enough is enough. Black Lives Matter. And that does it for episode one of Stick to Sports, folks. It was a heavy one this week, I know. There's a lot going on. I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of everything happening right now, but we will do our best to do that in the weeks to come. So, of course, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Stick to Sports with Ricky J. Mark. You can follow me on Twitter and all forms of social media at Ricky J. Mark. Learn more about me at RickyJMark.com and be sure to register to vote at RickyJMark.com vote. Election day is coming, folks, so be ready. This was fun. Let's do it again soon.